Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word in these tumultuous times, Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear for them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who will revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, <clears throat> because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thank you. Good morning. In my former life, I would have skipped over the whole preaching to spirits in prison part. Um, we just didn't talk about the hard things. I like that in this church, uh, we go verse by verse. So you get to hear the hard things, get to address the things that uh, we would say don't quite flow, but actually it makes a lot of sense that Peter would talk about uh, Christ 
preaching uh, to the spirits in prison, if, if we follow the context. I'm excited to talk about this. I learned so much in preparing a sermon, and it just puts me on my tippy toes. I, I want to tell you what I am learning, what I am seeing in God's Word. And I want you to know, too, that I'm, that I'm grateful that you are patient <laughs> as I'm learning to preach, learning to do this uh, with you. This is a real gift, uh, and I thank you. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And if I was to encapsulate or, or capture what this passage is about, uh, it's, it's live out your faith. Show others what Christ has done in your life. And this is such a simple encouragement that sometimes we miss it. Do your faith. After we talk theology and learn Sunday school, um, read scripture together, there's something to do about it. Walk the talk. If you are just joining us today, Josh, our, our lead pastor, has been walking through Genesis verse by verse. Uh, and when I get the chance to preach, I'm going through Peter, First Peter. And the push of this letter is to the persecuted Christians of Asia Minor, and it's this. Though you are enduring suffering, take heart. The hope you have because of Christ will give you strength and allow you to respond in every situation with love and courage. And we need this. We need this today. 1 Peter 3.8 says, finally, all of you, and then he lists five things. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And finally is a turning point word. After giving some very specific instructions about submitting to the government, whether it's a good one or a bad one, slaves to their masters and wives submitting to their husbands, Peter now switches to speak broadly to all Christians giving instructions about how to live out one's faith, especially in hostile times. And these are lovely words with great weight. There are five phrases, and they kind of are arranged in a hill. It's called a chiasm. And when this happens, we need to pay attention because the top of the hill is the most important thing that he's trying to say in this verse. the bottom of the hill, verse 1, will correspond to the last one, verse 5, or, or phrase, phrase 1, phrase 5, 2, 4, and then the middle one is the important, the importantest one. And we'll notice the parallels here. Uh, one, have unity of mind, and that parallels have a humble mind. Verse 2, sorry, <laughs> it's phrase 2. Have sympathy, and the fourth one is, have a tender heart. And those, those are feeling words. Those are emotive words. So the first one is mind. Second level is motive. And the top one is, it's the most important, act with love toward one another. Our unity is not from a set of external rules. 
I'm even going to say that it's not from a common doctrine, which it is. Those are important. But our unity comes from being in Christ. We share a master. We share his spirit. We are to share his very heartbeat. Unity for the Christian is so much more than having a common corporate goal. It's allegiance. It's an allegiance to Christ by the influing of, infilling of God's Spirit. And this makes us sympathetic to one another and tender-hearted. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12.15 and 16, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never being wise in your own sight. Unity and sympathy here are the birthplace of humility. Why? It's because of and for Christ. We are all of lowly estate, but for God's glory, Christ raised us up. This is our humility and our hope. I have a side note from the Facebook world. Don't say humble brag. People say humble brag all the time now, and it's a thing. And it's, it's like, humble brag, I got a million on my SATs, you know. And that's, I don't know what an SAT is. Uh, but there's no such thing as a humble brag. There's just brag brag. The Bible says if you're going to brag about something, brag about how Jesus is changing your heart. That's humility. That's what we're to be about. Back to this little phrase mountain. At the peak, the highest virtue is brotherly love, Christian love. And it's to bind us together, to love, to encourage, to sacrifice for, to elevate your fellow believer. Look around. This ragtag group of people that surround you today are people that outside of Christ you'd probably have very little in common with. But we are to be the people that lay down our lives for one another because of Christ. That's how we are to abide. That's how we are to be community, to be the church. The next verses address how we are to interact with those outside the church. 1 Peter 3.9 don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. First off, in the church, if you are practicing verse 8, love, you should never need to worry about verse 9, reviling. Second, this is how Jesus walked through, the life, through life. If we look back at 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24, we addressed that a few sermons back. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body, 
on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Romans twelve fourteen, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It has been said, and I like this, it has been said that Christian revenge is to forgive and forget injuries and to bury them in love. Isn't that beautiful? One of the great early preachers named John Chrysostom said, fire does not extinguish fire, but with water. Likewise, wrong and hatred, not with retaliation, but with gentleness, humility, and kindness. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, from Matthew 5, 44. And then he did it. Moving on, Peter furthers his charge by quoting Psalm 34, 12 to 16, if you want to look it up later. And this is near word for word, so you probably don't have to. 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I think it's interesting that Peter includes words from the psalmist here. It's fitting because the psalms draw a strong distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Who the righteous are and who constitutes the wicked is a crucial theme running through the whole Psalter. The contrast is this, the righteous wholly depend on God, while the wicked depend on themselves. The righteous rest in God's sovereign will, while the wicked pursue whatever they see as good. The righteous do not seek revenge, while the wicked take matters into their own hands. This letter is Peter's word to the righteous few. 13 to 14a, now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous to do good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Who will harm you for doing good? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, no one. That's crazy. But Peter speaks like a proverb with a generalization. Likely no one will harm you for doing good. But he, more than most, knows that the righteous do suffer. In fact, there is a wickedness out there that finds joy in hurting the innocent. So he follows up by saying, if you should suffer, you will be blessed. And the rest of this passage finds meaning because of that one sentence. If you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. This is 14b. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with 
gentleness, and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior rather, in Christ, may be put to shame. Peter knows what he's talking about here. Remember Jesus, Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me. And Peter, like all of us, said, no, I won't. How naive, how wicked at the very same time. And because of fear, Peter denied ever even knowing, ever even knowing Jesus to a little schoolgirl with a lollipop. Lollipop's a little extra biblical, but you get it. He denied knowing Jesus to a little girl out of fear. And we have the fear of loss, the fear of ostracization, suffering, the fear of what others think. And for a million, million other fears, we choose not to honor God. But after a lifetime of learning these hard lessons, God produced a dependence in Peter, a faithfulness. So everything, everything boils down to trusting God to overcome your fear. He asks, what's the worst that could happen? Separation, torture, death. Those aren't so bad. You are immortal. And the moment you stop being immortal, you will be with Jesus in paradise. Be brave. Honor Christ. He says, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for your hope. You'd expect Peter to say, always have an answer ready for the reason behind your faith. But for Peter, hope is the most central element. Christian, hope is your fuel. In his letter, Peter says, a living hope elevates you to the status of kings and priests. It gives you a family, protects you in fires. It changes your rebellion to obedience. And as he says in chapter 2, verse 9, it gives you cause to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The good news is your hope. The good news is your message. Here's my life. Last week, I asked some of you to pray as I was going to share the gospel with an old man that I know. But there was no natural opportunity, and I, I didn't make one. This week, he's in the hospital, and I can't visit him. Actually, there's a chance that sharing my hope with him may not come. And it was just fear. It's my very great shame. And I'm praying for another chance. Peter says, speak with gentleness and respect. And we need to do this always with every interaction. It is a very different path to treat everyone with respect. And people all the time get this wrong. Weighing how much respect does the other deserve? Well, that's not how it works. 
the respect due is the respect due to God. How much should you respect God? You are on His mission. You represent Him. That's how much you should respect others. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. And this is a massive verse. This is all you need to know about who's in charge. This says God is 100% sovereign. He controls the good in your life and the bad. Look at it again. If it is God's will, you will suffer for doing good. Better for being righteous and dependent on Him than being punished for evil. If we think of ourselves as an iron block, this is who I am, I will not bend, I will not break, then it's going to take hammers and it's going to take heat to mold us. But if we cling to what the scriptures say, we are clay and God is the potter, then our shaping will be so different, won't it? The power of a true Christian, one that is obedient to God's word, is that they know exactly that they are exactly where God wants them responding in exactly the ways God wants them to. Why might we suffer for doing good? Because, verse 18, Christ also suffered. Think of it. The one guy, the only guy that should never have had to suffer was Jesus. But he suffered in obedience to God. Being equal with God, he nonetheless showed us the perfect example of submission suffering. This is hard stuff, but it is blessed. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. This is not a digression in this passage, but it's actually the context of our faith. If verse 17 is a clear teaching of suffering and sovereignty, then verse 18 is a clear pronouncement that Jesus Christ suffered and died on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous, in submission, sorry, in substitution of our deserved punishment. This is the good news. We are condemned sinners. Christ died in our place and rose victorious, proving every claim and prophecy about himself. You want hope? Because of Christ, you will be victorious too. Isaiah 53 is all about this. But we're just going to look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because of this verse, Christ is known as the righteous one of God. Again, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But as Josh said a couple weeks back, there are no righteous people. No one is godly. 
If God wants a people for himself, he has to make them. He has to call them. He has to clean them. He has to mold them. He has to keep them. And that's what he's doing for his chosen people. From verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, has often served to split Christ's being into flesh and spirit, body and soul. It's like his flesh died, but his spirit lived. And that's not how we are to read this. Instead, the context would have it read, read, have us read, that fallen humanity, the flesh, put Christ to death. But God's Holy Spirit made him alive. Looking at it this way, this really emphasizes the parallels that we have. Our fallenness equals death. God's Spirit gives us life. But now we come to the hard stuff. Verse 19. Made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. In Peter's next letter, he makes this funny comment that Paul can sometimes be hard to understand. Well, nobody throws a curveball like St. Peter. We're reading on along about hope and about how we're supposed to live, and then he throws this in, proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Here's the workup. Scripture actually says very little about what happens in the gap between death and judgment. The Hebrews call it Sheol. The Greeks call it Hades. It's the place of the dead, the place of the departed. We would say the grave just, just means death. So what happens after death? What happens in the waiting place? And there have been some wild teachings come out about this. What you must hear is that Sheol, Hades, the grave are not hell. Hell is the place of eternal punishment, and it comes after the final judgment. So you need to hear that there's no hell yet. It comes only once Christ presides over the final judgment. Any translation that uses the term hell is mixing up the grave, death, with the place of damnation for all who are disobedient, rebellious, and unrepentant. An example, a notable one, comes from the Apostles' Creed. If you want to look at it, it's six, page 667 in your hymnals. It's not scripture. But as a creed, it tries to bring together the most important parts of what we believe. If somebody says, what do you believe? You probably wouldn't start at Genesis 1-1 and read all the way to Revelation 22-21. You'd give a synopsis, and that's what a creed is. These things we believe. But where it says, Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried descended to hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. That's saying too much. Saying that Jesus descended to hell is where the authors went astray. And they did this by mixing up three verses. So we'll look at these three. 
Ephesians 4, 9 and 10. This is Paul's words. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fulfill all things. Now, scholars nowadays understand this to mean that Jesus left heaven to come to earth, the lower regions. But others have mixed this up with our verse, verse 19, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And further, 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and we'll address that word shortly, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. You get some wonky teachings. Out of this, one of them is that Jesus preached a second chance after death to wicked humans or even fallen angels. That goes against the whole rest of Scripture, so we can't read it that way. Hebrews 9.27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, we have one life to live, one life in which to repent. There's no second chance. And biblically, there's no hell yet. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters." And this is one long run-on sentence in Greek. So we're dividing it up into chunks that we would put capitals and periods. Peter's point is this. Once made alive, once made alive, death, death of the flesh, and then alive by the Spirit, the resurrected Jesus proclaimed his victory over even the strongest supernatural forces. The resurrection does that. It proclaims Christ's victory. It is victory over evil spirits kept in prison because of their disobedience way back during the time of Noah. But you can just hear Peter's contemporaries saying, what? This is too much for us. What are you talking about? It's so out there. So what Peter does is when he writes this next letter, Second Peter, he goes back and he gives a little more clarity. So let's look at Second Peter chapter 2 together. And I don't know if you'll forgive me... There's just so much good stuff on either side of this one verse. We're just going to read extra. Knowing this, first of all, this is from 20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretations. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
whole scripture is God's word. None of this comes from man. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Here it is. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them example, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for, that, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If God did not even spare angels when they sinned, verse 9 then says, God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter's point, God knows how to keep you. He knows. Trust him. If you want a little more background to where 1 Peter 3.19 and 2 Peter 2.4 come from, It's interesting. It seems that Peter has no problem using Jewish and Greek myths and stories to say something about Christian truth. Quoting Jewish mythology, the spirits in prison seems to come from a non-biblical work called Second Enoch. And casting them into hell comes from Greek mythology where the Titans were imprisoned in Tartarus, the underworld. It's not hell. For whatever reason, many translators say, cast into hell. The word should be underworld. And Peter seems quite comfortable reappropriating these fictions to talk about how God truthfully punishes all rebellion and will fully vindicate all who are obedient. Getting back to our passage, after talking about Christ's triumph over the baddest of spirits, Peter asks, do you want further proof? Look at Noah. God saved him from the very water that executed everyone else, saying, you're like Noah, even if the whole world is against you. God spared only eight people out of millions, even if the whole world is against you. 
God will vindicate you. Because of Christ, God will vindicate you and you will triumph over your enemies. It just may not be in this life. And that's okay. Verse 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removing of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ is only ever victorious. Our God is not a half-God, hoping it will all work out, wishing he could have saved more people, if only they would have let him. No, every win is a win, and every loss in the life of a believer is designed for their good. So every win is a win, and every loss is a win if we remain obedient. 21 and 22. Baptism isn't a ritual cleaning. Peter reminds us it's not the removal of dirt from the body. Baptism is a death. I relinquish my old ways. They are dead. And I now appeal to God for a good conscience. Forgive my sins through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make me clean today. And continue to help me put to death sin in my life until I die or until I'm taken home. As Christ has triumphed over sin and death and every other evil, whether natural or supernatural, I too may join in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and all powers being subject to him. Amen. One theologian writes, few passages have so many themes and different ideas intertwined as this one. But the main point is not too complex. Just as Jesus suffered as a righteous man as was, and was vindicated, so too, if the churches of Peter live righteously, they too will be vindicated and sit with Jesus in the presence of God. Walk the talk. Act as you believe. This is the will of our God. Let's pray. Father, in your glorious goodness, you have caused all things. You are in charge of all things. You do not tempt, but allow wickedness, but only for a time. It is our great joy that you are the righteous judge, that you will condemn. What an awful, awful world this would be without judgment someday, where no rights wrongs are made right, where everything is chaos. What hope is there in that? But God, through Jesus, you have given us hope. 
hope that we do not have to stay stuck in our sin, hope that we do not have to be selfish, but instead can help one another, hope that we can share the good news, the good news that you still are rescuing sinners. Thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross and his triumph over all wickedness, sin, death. Lord, thank you that these are our promises, that the things that we deserve, Jesus took, and the things that he deserved, we get to participate in. It's marvelous. Thank you. Amen.